Hi, and welcome to Drawing Inspiration. I am your host, Mike Hendley. In this podcast, I look beyond the pencils, the brushes, the sketchbooks, and the iPads to discover what it means to be an artist. Join me as I speak to other creatives about their journey, as well as reflecting on my own artwork and experiences. Episode 81, The Practice and the Journey of Art, with artist and science illustrator, Messa Schumacher. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. So before we get into the interview, I'm just going to cover a few quick updates here and some exciting news. So the first thing I wanted to mention is that regardless of where you listen to the podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Amazon, Google, it doesn't matter, that you take that opportunity on that platform to like and share the podcast. That helps other people to discover it. And um, if you do nothing else for the podcast, I would uh, encourage you to do that. If you want to leave a comment or a review, that's great as well. But I would encourage you to kind of share and distribute the podcast and help me get the kind of the message and the content to others. So I would uh, greatly appreciate if you could do that. That would be fantastic. Now, I have some big news to share with you. I'm um, pleased to announce a very special partnership with a company whose products I've been using for some time. If you've been listening to the podcast, you'll know what I'm talking about. And if you listen back to the episodes, you'll hear me talk about this goal in finding a sketchbook for me that's suited for graphite and watercolor and ink and gouache or acrylic. I wanted something all in the same book. And this book ended up being a hot press sketchbook. And the company is Etcher. Etcher reached out to me a few weeks ago as part of a focus group. And the conversation expanded as one of the founders, Simon, wanted to understand how they could help the podcast. So I've always been very careful about partnerships or sponsorships, ensuring that it works out the best for you as the listener and for the podcast. So I felt that with my conversation with Etcher and Simon, that this was a perfect fit. I felt that we both had the same goals in mind. And I felt there was an opportunity for the listener to get something out of this. And I've been using their products for a long time. And I just love these sketchbooks. And so I had no problem kind of moving forward with this and working with Etcher. With the support of Etcher, I have two things to announce. The first is a code for 10% off. So anything you buy through Etcher, through their online store, and they ship worldwide, uh, you can get 10% off with the code MikeH. That's M-I-K-E-H. Uh, no spaces, no underscores, nothing, just Mike H. And you apply that at the end of your order and you'll get 10% off, which is fantastic. And the second thing to announce is that we are doing a monthly giveaway of an Etcher sketchbook. So you've seen these white sketchbooks I've been using. Uh, you will have your choice of hot or cold press, and you can choose the size as well. So you can go for A4, A5, or A6, A4 being the largest and A6 being the smallest. So if you've been watching my Instagram feed, you know I've been doing this perpetual journal, like a, a drawing each week. So I'm doing that in an A4, uh, which is the larger sketchbook, and I'm using hot press paper. And the reason I'm using that sketchbook is it has 52 pages. So I have a page per week of the year. And so that's been fantastic for me. So if you wanted a sense of the size, I'm drawing up in the corner or the bottom corner, whatever the case of that book for my perpetual journal. And then if you look at my smaller sketches I've been doing, that's an A6 size. So that is the smallest one. I've been using that for my Bugs and Coffee series, which I'll talk about in a little bit. And for some of those single um, 
studies. I've been using that sketchbook and once again in hot press. I've been using the cold press as well, but I tend not to share those. And I'm when I go out in the field, I don't know if I'm going to do watercolor or not, so I tend to take the hot press with me. So uh, if you want to get a sense for these sizes and how they actually look with uh, with materials on them and pen and paper, just check out my Instagram and you'll see uh, mentions for that. So back to the giveaway. We are going to be giving away a sketchbook per month. And the way this will work is the first contest will go live uh, Thursday, July 21st on my Instagram. I will post an announcement about what this is. It's going to be fairly simple. Um, I think we're just going to ask you to uh, to follow each of us, a like, and provide a comment about what you would draw in your sketchbook. And then you'll be entered into a randomized draw, which I will run on the Sunday, just before the next podcast. And on that podcast, I will announce the winner. And we're going to do this for the next few months. So if you are interested, uh, keep an eye out for my Instagram. I would encourage you to follow me as well as Etcher on Instagram. That way you'll be ready when this gets announced on the 21st. So keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, don't forget that code MikeH for 10% off your next purchase. I think that's wonderful. I mean, I'm so glad that Etcher wanted to reach out and support the podcast. And I just wanted to mention one more thing. So Etcher have a newsletter they've been sending out. I spoke to Simon about this as well. Etcher is trying to reach out to retirement villages, regardless of the country, to understand how Etcher can help in fostering art in their lives. So they this is a strong demographic for them and they want to be able to support it more. If you want to be part of this, if you want to learn more about what they're doing, please send an email to hello at etcherstudio.com and you can find out how you can get involved. I think it's a great idea. And me being 55, uh, I'm always interested in in exposing everyone to art, regardless of age, but I'm, it's so wonderful to hear this kind of targeted approach for people who are either uh, bringing art through their whole lives and, and they're in their 50s and 60s or later at this point, or they're just rediscovering it, as I've had people who are 17, 80, just starting up in art again. So I think this is a great endeavor on Etcher's part. So if you sounds interesting to you, please reach out uh, to them with an email to hello at etcherstudio.com. So thank you, Etcher Studio, for your support of this podcast and creatives worldwide. So the other thing I wanted to mention is there is a conference coming up in September called the Wild Wonder Nature Journaling Conference. And this is put on by John Muir Laws, as well as a number of volunteers. It is happening September 14th to 18th of this year, 2022. So it's it's an online conference with a mix of various seminars and talks on everything from gouache to how to do cross sections, composition, hummingbirds, pastels, and just so much more. I'm really excited about this conference. I think this is the fourth year it's been running. And I just wanted to mention it because I think it sounds exciting. I haven't attended before, but I have three previous guests who are actually speaking there. I wanted to make mention of it because early bird pricing is on right now. So early bird pricing is $85 and it is going to $95 July 15th. So if you're listening to this podcast when it goes live, you've got four days (laughs) and then the price goes up to 95. So I just thought I would mention this. I love hearing about these conferences that foster kind of inspiration and nature and art and creativity. So I think it, uh, it looks fantastic. I'm looking forward. I'm for sure going to be attending this. And I would encourage you to check it out. And if it seems interesting, here's an opportunity to save uh, $10 on the conference. So I didn't release an episode two weeks ago. Uh, The reason being is I had one around the retreat and I was going to talk through that. I had it all kind of queued up to go and I thought I'm going to hold back on this a little bit. 
I wasn't sure if the content would be applicable to people because it was a real personal experience in me going through this retreat. I may release it as like a bonus episode in between normal shows at some point in the near future. I'll have to think about it. But overall, this idea of my own personal retreat for uh, that week that I was off was fantastic. I kind of rediscovered parts of myself, realized that I've always been a creative when I think back of, you know, I went and visited where I grew up and all the memories were about creativity. I, I'm probably going to do this like twice a year because I really enjoyed this opportunity to go out and visit an art gallery. Uh, I, I did some more drawing, did some more painting. Uh, I think I'm going to do a few changes the next time I do it, but uh, I felt kind of rejuvenated. And uh, one of the things that came out of that is I redesigned my website. So I made some edits to it. I built my own kind of personal theme around it. I wanted kind of better blog integration. I'm going to start blogging more. So I wanted that to be front and center. I wanted to bring in my my product store so that it's on my website. I can highlight some of the more recent entries in that. And I'm still working on the portfolio of my work or the portfolios of my work, but uh, I'm going to be posting and pushing those up soon. So there's more to come, but I'm really happy about uh, pushing out this first iteration of my, uh, my new design. My other one was quite dated and I felt it really wasn't telling the story. So just a few quick art updates. So I've been drawing and painting a bunch. <laughs> so through my retreat, I did quite a few pieces. I uh, did a, an iPad drawing of a church, uh, Notre Dame Basilica in downtown Ottawa. I was at the art gallery and I look over and I see this church, which I've been at. I was there for my graduation and I thought, I'm just going to draw it. So I did. And um, the church reached out after I posted and said, asked if they could use it on their uh, social media. So I thought that was kind of cool. And I ended up visiting a um, museum here, the Museum of Nature, and they have a bugs exhibit. So I took a bunch of photos of that. And then I started drawing bugs in coffee shops. So I just called that little series Bugs in Coffee. I still have more to do. But that was kind of fun, once again, in that A6 Etcher sketchbook. And uh, really had fun with that. I just love going out to areas and just drawing either what's in front of me or just using a reference off my phone or my device and uh, just getting out. The last thing I'd mention is that I, I had an event that was almost like an Achievement Unlocked experience. So I went to a college here in Ottawa about 30 years ago. So a friend of mine that I went to college with reached out uh, about a year ago and asked if he could use one of my dragonfly drawings as a tattoo. And I was like, sure, that's fine. And so I sent him the original and uh, it was a black and white. It was a graphite piece that I had done. And he sent me an image of it on his arm. And I have to say, I was just blown away. It is the first time that I'm aware of <laughs> that my work uh, has been turned into a tattoo by this wonderful wonderful uh, Ottawa uh, tattoo artist. I'll provide a link to her. Uh, I think it's Tattoos by Zoo is uh, her on Instagram. So I'll provide a link to her as well and uh, and to the artwork. And I just, I, I thought it was great. I, I love this idea of one artist leveraging another, obviously with permission. And I think she rendered the color beautifully based on the fact that I provided a graphite version, but it was just so cool to see my artwork on someone's arm. And now I'm thinking maybe I need a tattoo. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to put more thought into that one, but we'll see. So that's it for updates. Now let's jump into this interview. I discovered my guest this week through a post she made on the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators SciArt mailing list. I jumped onto her website and was so excited to see her work from medical illustration to infographics, 3D work with ZBrush, as well as personal projects involving a massive compilation of animals she calls Animalia. 
She has a formal science education as well as a master's from Johns Hopkins Medical School in illustration. She has explored everything from digital to traditional art, sculpture, and monoprinting. She has the incredible ability to deconstruct complex scientific concepts and then construct an image or a story to share with us or the intended audience. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Messa Schumacher. How are you? Hi. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I'm so pleased to have you on. I'm glad we were able to connect. I kind of came across your name through the Guild of Natural Science Illustrators. I had, uh, we're on the same mailing list. I saw you post about a previous podcast and I dug into your work and I was like, I really need to talk to her about her work. And uh, I'm so excited to get into this as uh, kind of a science illustrator and the animation and your work with ZBrush and, and all just, it's just exciting. So I'm hopeful we'll get to all of it, but uh, I thank you once again for taking the time out to, to be in the podcast. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm excited to talk art. <laughs> <laughs> in talking about art, I always like to uh, talk to my guests about how they started and, and where they started and, and whether creativity was something that was developed over time or did it start with you in your youth and then stick with you? So for you, was were you a creative kid and did you just stick with it or how did that journey go for you? Yeah. Um, I mean, I like, like so many people, I think <laughs> I was definitely a creative kid. I, you know, I, I think most kids are. I didn't have creative parents per se, or at least parents who were working creatively. My dad does a lot of projects, um, but they were very supportive parents. And so when they saw that I really enjoyed doing creative things, um, they would, they were really good at supporting that, helping me find materials, helping me, you know, set things up. And also um, I, our house was kind of, there was very often projects set up in like the living room corner or something on a tarp and when someone would go through cleaning up we would say no no I'm working on a project don't touch that and my parents would let those things stay out for months sometimes on the biggest ones and I think that really fostered kind of a creativity in my both my brothers and I that persists um, neither of them are are artists but they do a vast amount of creating in their houses, you know, and in their lives um, on their own time. So yeah, that, uh, that just kind of helped me explore. So I was always exploring, I was always processing things through art, drawing, painting, sculpture, mosaics, <laughs> painting furniture, um, and making crafts and trying to sell them. My mom had a little kid's store for a while, and I sold stuff through there. And I, I tried to incorporate art into any project I could at school. If I could make it a poster or a some sort of visual media, I would. And as I got older, I started to take all my notes, especially in my science courses, in comic form, kind of a la Larry Gonick, um, where I have characters popping up and saying things, making little, you know, commentary on the main story and yeah so I was always doing that and um I I actually did do a fair bit of science illustration as a young person I just didn't really realize it okay I was doing I was a young naturalist at the Seattle Aquarium where I grew up and a lot of what I was doing was interpreting animal behavior and natural objects and stuff and some of my work was also drawing that or like explaining it to people visually so I was I was doing that and then I was also doing like more academic style figures. I was looking at fossil primate teeth and trying to, that was kind of my senior project was comparing fossil 
lemur-ish, lemur-like animal teeth casts from North America and comparing them to modern lemurs. Wow. And, um, you know, looking at the morphology. And, uh, but <laughs> somehow, even with all these activities, I didn't realize until I was a sophomore in college that this was a job. You know, somehow it just never clicked in my mind that I could make a living doing this thing. And so I, I went to university and I I was kind of thinking I'd be a doctor or maybe I'd go and get a PhD and do field biology or something of that sort, as I, I love those areas as well. But it really wasn't clicking for me. I really didn't love, I didn't feel like I personality-wise fit into the structure of academia. And um I talked to a lot of doctors who were really down on the current medical system, which is understandable. And um, I, I felt like that would be really hard for me to keep enthusiasm up as well. I'm kind of a really flitty person. I really, flitty is maybe the wrong word, but I really like digging my hands into a lot of different areas um, and exploring them. And I really wasn't excited about the idea of really just focusing on one project for years and years on the academic track or... Um, keeping up the stamina as a student for so long. So I, uh, luckily, <laughs> I got a scholarship after my sophomore year of college to study and do archaeology in the Andes in Peru at wow. this site called Chavin de Huantar, which it's up in the mountains um, uh, in the Cordillera Negra. And it's, uh, it's, it's an old kind of monumental religious site. It's in UNESCO World Heritage Site now, but people didn't necessarily live there, but people would journey there. And really, it seemed like the priests there would get them high on cactus mixtures and send them into these underground tunnels. So these people would be underground in these tunnels with water pouring through water channels nearby, roaring, um, and sunlight going through these carefully carved and positioned shafts. And then they would go in and they'd see carved sculptures and it'd be like, oh my God, I'm under in the underworld seeing God. So this was a fantastic place to learn about archaeology. I am so lucky <laughs> to have experienced that. But for me, what was pivotal was in the evenings after we were running around, you know, digging up artifacts and skeletons and things um, and excavating these, these tunnels and, and plazas, we would have dinner and then we would draw artifacts. And um, this was in pen and ink, just regular paper in this place. And we were mainly drawing lithics. So it would be obsidian arrowhead type things. And, and obsidian, for those who don't know, is um, a very interesting material. And it, it really, it doesn't have a, a um, very cleanly structured mineral lattice. So light refracts off it in all different directions. So it's actually really difficult to photograph well as an artifact and um and you can't always take artifacts out of country you know there's there's rules about that good point and mm -hmm. so how do you study the forms of these things the incidents and, and the amounts and forms that are coming out of one country well the best way often to do so is still pen and ink drawings mm -hmm. and this just amazed me this like blew my mind and um my professor was there and he was saying hey this is a job and i immediately was like okay this, this is you know this is what i'm gonna do and um went back to the university the next year and I was just on a track then. Um, I was going to be a science artist and so I was taking science widely um, in my coursework and 
doing a little bit of art, but it wasn't, I wasn't at an art school. So I was doing a lot of uh, self-study. Then I started reaching out to people. I started reaching out to science artists and medical artists and asking them about their work and how they'd gotten to where they were and for advice. And they said, you know, learn Adobe, learn to do digital art now because you're going to need it. Digital is the future and and you're going to need it Um, and draw all the time. Uh, Observe things, draw things that are real. Don't just draw from pictures. And so I kind of started my own self-study, which lasted, well, continues (laughs) at that time while I was doing coursework. And and then um, I started uh, going and meeting with professors and saying, hey, I'm trying to do this. I'll do this for free for you if you have any figure needs or if I can explore the collections here at the archaeology center or something. And um, some of them would give me little jobs and then sometimes they'd pay me and then more of them were paying me. And uh, I started doing a couple of little, you know, uh, side gigs and and it kind of all spiraled from there. So um, I was kind of able to combine those two loves of science and art um, and and make a career out of it, which has changed over the years. But mm-hmm. really, the guiding factor has always been I'm so inspired by explaining the world through art. And that has really that thread has run through most of the projects I've been involved in. That's such an interesting story. And the two things strike me with that. And, and the one goes back to your youth in that, you know, having that support network as a kid and having that support network as you get older is so important. But it's not just the encouragement, right? It's not, oh, you did a great job. That's a wonderful piece. It's giving you space that your work was able to occupy space in an adult world yeah, and making sure that even as we get older, that we have the space to be able to, to work, right. And to be able to lay our stuff out. And I think um, as you get older, it's hard to find that space because it's occupied by kids and (laughs) (laughs) other duties and things like that as well. Right. So. Yeah. Now I've got two little kids who are invading my art studio and I, (laughs) but it's also, it's fun for me to kind of create, I have made them little studios in their rooms. Well, one's two and a half. So he's just getting his now mm-hmm. with age appropriate art materials. But we have, you know, uh, my daughter is a prolific, she's almost five. She's a prolific kind of comicer, And she'll just sit for hours and hours and go through page after page. And I don't know, I just try to keep up with materials that I think fit what she likes to do and give her paper. And she's like more excited about a notebook than any other object on earth. Fresh notebook. Um, <laughs> Like she'll jump up and down. She's so happy. So I kind of dole them out like treats. (laughs) Um, But it's going to be really fun, I think, in a way, is helping them kind of do their own artistic exploration. It makes me happy to repeat that. (laughs) That's awesome. It's so funny you mentioned the notebooks. Just before we got on the call here, I gave my daughter a couple of (laughs) notebooks. She's 16, uh, but she wanted a couple of notebooks because she wants to log all the books she's read and she wants to do it in an analog way. Uh, even though she uses Goodreads and that. So it's like, okay, well, I've got a bunch of field notes I collected for about <laughs> four years. So uh, yeah, here's here's a selection. Kids are such an important part of all of this. You know, we were all one at one point and I discovered art by drawing with my daughter because I was a work-at-home dad. And yeah. uh, that's how I got into it was just drawing something with her and then realizing, huh, uh, maybe I'm not so bad at drawing. And it started from there. So it's that's it's wonderful. good that we can feed off of each other that way. So that's kind of cool. Kids are so brave, just watching them make yeah. a mark on paper and they, they just know exactly what they're doing. And what's it's like an urgency sometimes, you know, to get out the story that's in their head. It's really, really important. And um, 
and they just they don't they don't have any fear and then we kind of develop that fear over time um, of what others are going to think about this or can I do it so I think you know if there's any parents out there I think just cultivating like that space you know to explore and that this is something that they do and it's very serious Mm -hmm. um, in their world Uh, that's that's kind of what helped me not stop ever doing it I think that I got a lot of positive reinforcement that's awesome. And I think, you know, I haven't been into a restaurant since the pandemic started, but I keep saying that by the time I get into a restaurant, I feel like it's okay to do so. I'm uh, I'm going to order a kid's menu because you get a nice piece of paper and crayons. <laughs> Restaurants are such great places to draw too. Yes. I, I did a lot of, actually, I did a lot of waitressing and bartending and stuff um, okay. when I was kind of getting myself to a point where I was supporting myself fully in art in my early 20s. And after my shifts or during my breaks, I would always just have a notebook there and I would just sketch people and draw things. And it was, it was really enjoyable. <laughs> you know, there's all of these people, there's such great people watching and everyone's busy eating. They don't notice you or people will come and sit and want to interact with you and, you know, <laughs> have you draw them or something. Yeah, exactly. So when you were uh, pursuing kind of deeper into your career, um, what did you focus on as a matter of degree? And then I think you went and into a master's as well, correct? Yeah, so I, I have an undergrad degree in physical anthropology, which is kind of like my compromises over time. I kind of started in biology, and I went to human biology, and then I kind of pared down the coursework to physical anthropology, which is, it's kind of archaeology and evolutionary biology, um, okay. was what it was at. Anthropology is a complicated um, subject, and I actually, I attended Stanford, and at the time they had the anthropology Department split into two, sociocultural, which is much more ethnography, and um, they kind of look at the world in a relativist way, where what can you really know? And physical anthropology is more the discipline of, no, there's empirical evidence, and we're going to focus on that and build off of that. So that was kind of, and the year after I graduated, I think they melded back together. And so it's uh, now defunct. But but yeah, it was kind of my way of doing biology-ish, mm-hmm. but also incorporating earth science and geology and anthropology and archaeology and some medical school courses and just throwing them in this one pot. And once I knew what I was going to do, I dropped. I didn't do a minor at all, and I just explored. So I came out with like the most pathetic-looking degree <laughs> in a way um, that I could build. But I had a really strong – and I, this was against the well-meaning advice of many people – but it has worked out for me. So I'm really proud of a few decisions I've made in life. And one of the ones I'm most proud of is ignoring everyone's well-meant advice as a college student, telling me, oh, I, you can't do this. This isn't going to work. What are you thinking? Do all those chemistry and physics prereqs for you're going to, you know, you're going to jump back in the path um, and you're going to have to do all this work to get back in the track. And I was like, you know, I, I don't think the track works for me. And I think I think that I am better at something else. Um, so I'm going to pursue that. And um, yeah, I, it's been very happy for me, even though it was a lot of work. That's really good because, you know, as we get deeper into this, we'll realize that you did really forge your own path through all of this, right? <laughs> Not just getting to that point in time. Yeah. That said, <laughs> I mean, I did go back. Like I, you know, I, I graduated with that. I started illustrating. I didn't have any formal art training. So I was just kind of jumping in. Um, and then I, I went back a few years later and I did a grad certificate at the University of Washington in scientific illustration, which is just night school, but it was excellent. Um, that program also no longer exists. 
but there's other ones like it that the GNSI posts a really good list um, of kind of the current programs at gnsi.org. And then uh, while I was doing that, I was also doing a little bit more advanced bio at the University of Washington and um, doing some fine art, traditional fine art at an atelier school called Gage Academy in Seattle, which is a great place. It's really focused on traditional technique and uh, realism. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do other stuff too, but figure drawing, you know, traditional oil painting. It's just a beautiful place. Great instructors. And I really, I did drawing and painting and sculpture there. And I was just really trying to improve my work. And and, um, I'd really decided, you know, I really want to do this right. Um, And so I was kind of, I was shooting towards grad school eventually. And I did move across the country and then go to Johns Hopkins um, Biological and Medical Illustration Master's Degree, which is a two-year program. It's embedded in the Johns Hopkins Medical School. So there's like six or seven students every year. And uh, we have kind of a little tiny little department and um, studio space. We all just work there together 24 hours a day. <laughs> and um, But also attending, you know, cadaver dissection with the med students, um, some pathology uh, with other grad students, functional anatomy grad students, and, um, and, and science courses. So it's kind of, it's a mix of um, traditional and digital art and being in a medical environment. And a lot of access the second year to surgery. So you kind of have free reign to go into all the surgeries that are going on at the hospital and draw behind the surgeons. That's amazing. Which was an incredible experience and uh, really helped a lot in developing what it is that I do today, even though I'm not in the OR so much. That's incredible. I work at uh, one of the larger hospitals in Canada, and uh, I work at the Research Institute. It's my day job. (laughs) And... In the last few years, I've been trying to push more and more to get uh, uh, art into the science a little bit more. So um, I, I think we're making some inroads there. But I think that's fantastic, having that kind of access, right? Once again, being able to occupy space as an artist within another environment, I think is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. yeah and to have access to the researchers or surgeons or physicians that are uh, performing procedures or who are deep in doing something. There was a lot of, there's a lot of um, benefit to being embedded in a place like that because most of the projects we were working on, they're real science, they're real research, they're real surgeries that are happening. And some of them end up as publications and um, the back and forth that goes on in a good work of science communication between scientist and artist with the idea of the intended audience in mind, that's really important because they carry they carry within them kind of, you know, the, the expertise, the, the true knowledge of this thing. And as an artist, I'm, I'm kind of a visitor in that world. I can learn to speak the language, you know, but I feel like I'm a, I'm a translator, a communicator. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of the bridge between that person who has a lot of specialized knowledge and jargon, potentially, and speaks in a very detailed way. And then I, it's my job to root out the importance, the important parts, the moments of that really need to be translated um, and highlight those and, and bring those out and then explain it in a way that the audience can understand, whether the audience is highly technical and in their field or a related field, or whether the audience is a patient who you can't assume has more than a sixth grade reading level. And you have to explain that in a very simple way. 
So finding the right balance and finding the goal of that project and then using the art skills or the visual techniques that are appropriate for that communication and still make it engaging, beautiful, you know, it's such a challenge every time. And it's really, really, I like, I never get bored of it. <laughs> um, it's, it's just, I'm a, I'm a little addicted to it. I think actually it's, I, um, <laughs> you know, there's never a new project that is exactly the same, even if it's on the same subject. Each one is is very different, and I really enjoy that. Are there many places in North America doing what you or or offering what you went through at John Hopkins? Uh, yeah, there are there are four grad schools: one at Johns Hopkins, one at Augusta, Georgia, uh, one in Chicago, and one at University of Toronto. And then, actually, um, th- those are the four accredited grad schools. And then I actually think that. Um, I actually think there's one more now, and I'm blanking on the name. This is where I can edit. <laughs> it's RIT. RIT was a program. I think it just got accredited. So now I think we have five, which is great. Awesome. Um, <laughs> awesome. And uh, there, there used to be other ones. There was one in Texas. I think there was, there's one in Michigan, and they closed, and, and hopefully there'll be more in the future. But those are, those are for medical. And then um, there's some certificate programs um, and undergrad for scientific, but it's very, it's very small. Uh, I hope we can expand it during my lifetime. There's a couple of programs in Europe as well that are mostly one year programs, um, but they produce fantastic artists. It's, and, and many people come from very different backgrounds, like some from more of a science and some from more of a fine art background. And then they kind of incorporate what they already know and learn to be these kind of communicative vessels, which is, yeah really the importance of my job, I think, currently in history. Yeah, it's, it's evolved a little over time. It used to be more recording, observational, in kind of the golden right. age of natural science illustration, specimen illustration, things like that. But now photography's gotten so good, and it's um, a little less important, I guess. Not, not unimportant, but it's rare that I'll just be sitting down and commissioned to draw a bone or something, you know. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, with the, with modern photography and other imaging techniques, um, how has illustration changed in the last, let's say, 20 years? And, and w- what future do you see for it? I mean, we can talk about this later, but I thought, you know, this is a great time to do that now. And yeah. understanding if someone is listening to this and has this idea that, you know, these this botanical work I've been doing or these animals I've been drawing, that's really, you know, scientific illustration. And maybe I should pursue that. Um, what do they have to look forward to and how is this changing? That, yeah. So I, I have my own kind of little framework of what I think of, um, kind of illustrations are in terms of visual communication. Um, and the first one I kind Mm -hmm. of say level one is, um, is the object itself in a vacuum. Think of it on white paper, you know, whatever. And that's the specimen as it is, um, either in perfect form, kind of an idealized form of like, I, I see a chickadee <laughs> on your um, screen behind you. Uh, like that would be, yeah. you know, just species in a void, in a vacuum um, or a bone mm-hmm. in a vacuum. Uh, and then you get to kind of level two where you're adding some context. And I think that almost like, a, almost like a photograph where this object or species or whatever you're drawing is in a moment in time, a moment in time and space. But it gives a little context. Where does it live maybe? Or, or um, how large is it? Or something of that sort. It gives some context for its 
physical attributes um, that you can't necessarily see in the void. Uh, in the void, you can see maybe color, form, anatomy, but, you know, next one you get there. Uh, number three would be kind of adding either time or space. So maybe you're plotting this onto a population graph or something, or you're showing the regional distribution of this animal, or you're just showing it in its environment and how it's moving, you know, a bee through a garden or something. Just, um, uh, you know, explaining something with those elements uh, or, or another element, explaining how, like, what's inside it. It's anatomy. So, so you're adding context. And then on top of that, you gain comparison between different things. You're comparing anatomy or you're comparing disease states, say. And then on top of that, my favorite, kind of level five, is um, context. Like, why do we care? The why of it all. Uh, so how does this matter in the history of the world, in medicine, in our everyday lives? Why do we care? Why do we care about this process? And why do we want to explain it at all? And that, I think about that a lot when I'm building infographics and I'm maybe creating a lot of different art or, or gathering a lot of different portions of um, a piece together. That's kind of my visual organizer and everything within it is serving a function like a piece of text would or like a graph would. But everything, everything, everything in that is built upon the basics of observation and understanding. So just drawing a species or something, you know, observing nature, that is not wasted nor useless skill. That's just the foundation, the building blocks upon which everything else is built. And it's kind of exciting because actually I think much of a science illustrator or a science communicator's work these days visually is more interesting <laughs> than it would have been a hundred years ago. It's much more varied often and it's challenging and it's, it's cool. It requires a lot of synthesis of information as well as artistic skill, which I think is great. Um, a lot of the museum jobs though that you used to have or um, you know, work just painting a turtle or painting um, a fossil just don't exist anymore in the same way. So um, anyone who's thinking they're going down this path, there's so many spaces to occupy or to create, but it just looks a little different than, um, than it did a hundred years ago or even 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. And then I think we'll explore some of the other digital ones as we get into yeah. this as well, which is kind of exciting too. So you, you went and got your master's. At what point did you transition from student to artist? Like, yeah. was that, I'm always curious about that. You know, I'm coming to art quite late in life. I know there are people listening that may be in their 20s and 30s who are looking at bringing their art to a different level. So it's always nice to hear how people transitioned and and understanding that it takes time and effort and maybe luck. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can talk about that transition from student to Yeah, artist. that's a great question. In my mind, an artist is a person who is practicing art. And that means you're regularly producing art. You're regularly sitting down, putting pencil to paper or stylus to tablet or whatever, and you're making art. And, uh, you know, you see that a lot, like, I think with actual, like, students, younger students, or, or you know, there was a lot of posturing. Oh, I'm an artist. You know, people would say when I was younger, and um, there's less of that now unless people are actually doing it. Because uh, I think you can pretend to be an artist for a while, but then if you're not actually making anything, are you? No, I don't think so. But I think... It doesn't really matter so much where your money or your income is coming from. If it's coming from your art or not, you can still be an artist. 
And I know a lot of fantastic artists who do not make money off of their art. And it's purely a passion project. I started out really thinking of myself as a scientist illustrator. And I really was grappling with which one I fell into more at the time that I began. And as I moved further and further in, I started calling myself an illustrator because I felt like really at this point, that's the path I'm taking. And then at some point I started calling myself an artist and I am an illustrator, but I, I also like the broad term artist because it just encompasses a lot of different things that I do. Illustration is the art of kind of telling a story. And that can be in so many different things, but it's, it's really communication storytelling art. So you're accompanying, you know, an article, you're illustrating either the emotions or the themes that that brings up, or you're actually illustrating some processes or some things that take place in that. Um, you're illustrating uh, a scientific concept, you know, you're, you're visually t- storytelling. Um, so that's, that's what that is. And art just can take so many different forms. It's such a nebulous term. So I, I kind of fall between those two. But mm-hmm. I think I started doing that um, when I really committed to practice full time. So I started that when I was still contract working and restaurant working in my early 20s. But I was determined to craft a space for myself as a professional working artist full time. And I was doing art every day. I was working on it all the time. And I felt like I'm an artist. I can call myself an artist. This is, I feel like I'm putting in the time and the work and I'm trying to improve. And that's, that was for me, what defined that for me, even if I wasn't as good as I wanted to be yet, I was putting in the hours and and doing it. And if you're doing that, I think you're an artist. That's cool. And at what point did you become a working artist where that became the paying gig above, you know, <laughs> I think working in the restaurants and drawing on the placemats. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, the first year that I supported myself on art was, I think I was 26. So I made enough money to pay all my expenses and fully support myself on illustration jobs. And I was so proud. It was, it, it really just felt like I'd crossed a border. And then I immediately went to grad school. So that was before I went, the year before I went to grad school, I was able to support myself on art. And then I went into grad school and I continued freelancing at the time through that process, which was maybe not wise, but it was good financially. And um, then I came out and I jumped right into a solo studio and just, excuse me, started a freelancing myself. And um yeah, so I've been working ever since. And that was, uh, and things are much better now <laughs> than they were then financially. But yeah, so that, that was a long time coming. And a lot of that is just building up momentum in terms of clients. I never really had a full-time gig where I was an artist or designer. I had a couple of temporary gigs. I did um, internships at Smithsonian and at National Geographic, both of which have been really useful to me. And those I had done during that time. And so those were kind of offshooting into job opportunities for me. And it it really is um, Mm -hmm. kind of indicative of how important network is to arts and how important being a nice person, (laughs) being a positive person within your community and and making connections with other artists and, and creators is. 
because I, I hadn't really, I, not that I'd been running around being negative, I just hadn't been around. <laughs> I was um, traveling a lot and I, I just moved to a new area that year to DC. And so I, I started right away with trying to get to know people who were there, who were working and, and what was available and let people know that I wanted to do this and that I wanted to do internships, that I wanted to get into this career and, and be very purposeful about that. And some people gave me some wonderful opportunities and I'll always be indebted to those people for giving me a chance, you know, and I try to pay that forward when I have extra work to give those to people that I think could just knock those jobs out of the park and do a great job who are younger artists or, or not necessarily younger sometimes, but just in that point in their career where those jobs helped me. So yeah, building, building a community and, and kind of taking an attitude of, rising tide lifts all ships, I think is great. I think there's a tendency sometimes as a younger artist to feel like, oh, competitive, I need to get this. But if you're going in with a, a vision of this as scarcity, it's really going to be a rough climb. You might make it up the hill, but man, no one's going to be throwing things at you when they have excess stuff. And so it's just like you and your own brute force. Whereas if you're kind of a team player, and you come up with people or you align yourself with others, like they will start to rise and you will too. It's, it's kind of, and you'll learn faster. That's the nice thing about going to a studio practice or something. You, you learn things from the people sitting next to you that they're picking up and you kind of have this, people say, a hive mind, right? Um, which is really great. Were you intentional in the kind of work that you were taking on? Was it, were you intentional in the subject matter? Were you intentional in the scope of the work? Um, like, were you rejecting things? Were you trying to stay on, on, on focus? Were you trying? Were you curious about other bits? H how were you first approaching Yeah, Yeah, um, I always went in with science art as my focus, scientific illustration. So I wasn't really chasing like the popular editorial market or anything. I was chasing science editorial, <laughs> science this. I, so I, it was always about um, science communication for me. And narrowing that scope and then trying to identify clients within that scope was a nice thing. I think it can be really hard if you're casting a really wide net, just feeling exhausted. And also in terms of building a portfolio, developing work that is um, just so broad ranging, people always want to see what they want you to do. So if they can see an example that is kind of basically what they want you to do or something really similar, then they feel confident in hiring you. And and especially at an artist who's beginning a career in, um, in some sort of commercial illustration, they are taking a chance on you, often within a pretty defined timeline, to get this work done. And their name is on the line. And they need you to deliver this. And they need to deliver it how they want it done, how the art director wants it done, or how the scientist wants it done to some extent. I mean, you're there also to drive the project in different ways. But mm -hmm. it's not just an open-ended gallery exhibition that you're working towards that's a little bit more not that galleries don't have their own needs <laughs> but that's a little bit more of like oh here's a body of work that I've been working on for a while and I'm going to try and sell it or here's some stuff I'm making and I'm going to try and sell these prints and maybe they'll sell maybe they won't but uh, you know at least I I drive the content of that yeah so so having a narrow scope or a narrower scope is is a good idea at least initially I think but I was also really taking whatever came in the door. <laughs> I couldn't afford not to. Was, was there a subject matter that you really enjoyed? I mean, if we get down to, if, if we're within that 
idea of science illustration, did you prefer doing uh, human beings or animals or or a certain type of illustration? Was there something that you were really that really you really enjoyed working? Yeah, on? um, I I like I kind of like broad things, but I I do love biology in general. So I I really do enjoy medicine and and human um, anatomy and biology and how that relates to, you know, disease and, and health and care. And I also just love, you know, animal biology. Um, and I, I'm really, I've been getting more into botany lately. I don't have as strong a background in it and kind of paleontology and archeology span fall within that broad scope of biology to me. Um, cause I kind of started out a little bit in those areas and, um, continue to work in them sometimes. But I, I love kind of, I love projects and things that, that just interest me in terms of their story. So either something very specific about, about medicine or about animal biology, say, is really of interest to me, or something that has like kind of a broader theme. And often those are collaborations because, you know, it's just a lot to take on, but about the universe, about time, about something big. I, I continue to work on a lot of National Geographic stories and I don't always get to draw. Sometimes I'll like do the anatomy portion of a spread or something, or I'll, I'll do something small, but I really enjoy those projects in that, like, I get a really big scope to work with. And it's like, go figure out this field of study and bring it back and say something cool about it. And I, I really like where I'm given a long leash to kind of go and root around in the science and then like say, this is what we could do visually. This is going to be awesome. People will love it, or I hope they will. Cool. You know, um, that's those are I really enjoy those things. And um, when I have time, I like to do that just on my own. <laughs> and I'd love to do more of that on my own, my own self-initiated projects in the future. But you know, right. it, life's a journey, and <laughs> you work up to that. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of starting to do more of that now myself. Do you remember the first project that you did that that had a fair degree of scope to it? That when you were complete, it was like. Oh, that was wonderful. Like, do you remember one of those first, like specifically about what you had worked yeah, on? Yeah. So two projects kind of jump out at me from when I was at National Geographic in-house. Um, the first one was I was doing this as an intern. Um, it was a songbird slaughter story written by Jonathan Franzen. And um, it was about the f- migration flyways through the Mediterranean and how in the Mediterranean, all these songbirds who are doing stopovers are just being killed and a huge loss of, of population and um, I, how they're trying to stop that, um, the conservation efforts. And I was brought in to work on the big fold-out graphic there with Fernando Baptista, who's one of their senior graphic editors. And they let me do all these little spot illustrations of birds. And so I got, I worked and I worked on them. And um, I think there was six in the magazine itself that were just all my illustrations um, peppering these pages. And then in the expanded digital edition, I think I did like, I don't know, 12 more or something. And um, they kind of animated them in. So it was, they were just kind of starting iPad editions then. And it was, um, I was like, this is, this is my dream as a child. I'm in the pages of National Geographic and these are mine. And I did this and I, I'm proud of them. I'm still proud of them. I, I've worked really hard on them. I think they hold up in my mind. So that was like, oh my God, I can do this. Ah, I made it. And, and then concurrently, that same editor had kind of put me up for um, helping with a, a field guide 
uh, a National Geographic books. And so I brought in my giant portfolio. It's like the only time I've used my physical portfolio. I brought in my portfolio and all my um, physical artwork to pitch myself. And um, and then I, I ended up doing um, the ocean, like water chapter of this uh, field guide. And then I, I did a follow-up field guide also with insects with them. That was a field guide. And uh, <laughs> I was, that was also a dream. So it was like, bam, bam, this year, two dreams of my childhood kind of had happened. I, I dug out, I was doing all these fish drawings and I dug out this illustration I'd done when I was like three or four. And my mom had meticulously labeled it, you know, Mesa, age three or whatever, different kinds of fishes. And I have all these little fish with, you know, and it's just, it was, um, so she framed that and sent it to me and like, I kept it on my desk. But both of those they were just like, it was almost like an exhalation of like, ah, I did it. I made it. Now what? And th- and quickly the feeling passed. And I don't mean to say that in like, I was very happy. <laughs> I don't want to diminish, you know, uh, this achievement because I was, I was very like, I was really excited about it. And I'd worked really tirelessly with, with a lot of missing sleep nights to like get to that point but then it was like well what project is next what can I do now what can I do now and I I always kind of think of that when I think about you know people ask what is your favorite project or anything and I think what's kind of the projects I'm working on right now because I'm they're currently occupying my brain and they're interesting me and I I'm just so engrossed in them that it's it's hard to go back and pick one thing that just stood out about the rest because when I really am in a project, I'm just, I'm in a, in a good project. Um, not one that I'm just kind of, okay, I'll take this on. I got to knock it out, but I'm just so engrossed in it. I'm so excited about it. And I'm just in love with the process of deconstructing and reconstructing ideas into visuals that, um, yeah, it's hard. Stephen Sondheim had a book. I think it's called look, I made a hat about art practice. Okay. And he is kind of the idea. You're a hat maker and you're making this hat and you're making this hat and you're working on this hat. And then you make this hat and then there's a little bit of a lag time, but you go and you say, look, I made a hat. And everyone says, Oh, clap, clap, clap. Nice hat. It's beautiful. And you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm proud of my hat, but really you're already working on your next hat in your mind and maybe physically in your, in your house or whatever, your workshop. And, and that's kind of um, art practice to me is um, I think the best artists are always practicing. There's always you get up and you're doing something and you're either you're doing exercises or you're thinking or you're just whenever I'm in good art practice, I'm moving through my day and I'm noticing things and I'm thinking about them and how I can incorporate them into my work or collecting, you know, visual or conceptual tidbits that I I want to do something with someday. And then I'll go back, you know, I'll put them on lists and I'll stick them in our archive folders. But then I always have a creative archive to pull from um, of ideas or, or visual ideas or things that I want to try. And with that, you're never going to get bored of art ever. It's just a reflection of your experience and, and a chewing it up and spitting it back out. So that's a kind of long winded answer to but, but that was uh, that time in which I was discovering that and realizing that for the first time was a really special time, I think. It's, it's a good point you bring up about uh, your favorite art, because I've asked that, you know, I, I wasn't going to ask you that question, but I think it's interesting that you bring it up, because it's almost that when I ask an artist that, their brain kind of switches a gear a little bit, and it's like, um, 
okay, I, I got this other stuff on my board right now on my drawing board in Procreate on Photoshop. And it's like, oh, uh, right. I did art before this piece. Let me just think. And it's, it, it is that you could see them kind of separating that a little bit and kind of trying to relive some of those. And as you say, when you associate the art with a life experience, then it's much easier. But when you ask artists about previous pieces, I spoke to um, Robert Bateman. And when I asked him about older pieces, it took a little while, but but then he would talk about it, but it was almost like reaching back into the catalog, yeah. right? I mean, he's done so much work, but it is that kind of, because he was working on a piece as I was talking to him, and it is this sense that you're engrossed in what you're doing, and you're giving it your all for this this child. It's not that you've neglected the other children, but I just have to remember them a little bit, because <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole story around that, the production, the reception of it, but uh, you bring up a good point. I never really thought about it that way. I. Hmm. I don't know how you feel about swearing on this podcast. I will have to edit it, but I can put in bleeps. Okay. If it feels, if if the color is good, I will leave it in and bleep it. If not, I'll just cut it out. Well, it's in the term of a hashtag, but I was, for a while, I was just playing around with what I called, I guess I drew this, um, Fridays, where I would just search through my archives and I would try and find things that I had totally erased from my memory and then try and remember the project. And because uh, I'm, I'm getting to a point now, you know, where I just, there's just so many images over the years and, and reaching towards decades, you know, of creation. I just don't remember everything I've done and I never will. And, um, but it's really, it's fun to go and do that. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I spent three weeks on this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and, and then it's totally gone. And uh, I, <laughs> I should do that again. But it, it, yeah, it's, it is really Especially, I don't know, I mean, I guess this is in every type of art. You're figuring something out. It's a little bit explicit in the type of art that I'm often doing, but in anything you're drawing, you're figuring out light and form and color, and you're trying to do something with a piece. Even if it's just, oh, this light falls interestingly on this grass, and I just want to explore that. You're always trying to figure something out, and you're always trying to kind of do a bit of wizardry on paper, or whatever, you know, where you're, you're, you're trying to evoke something, whether it's a feeling or whether it's tricking the eye into having this look realistic or something. And that's where I think, you know, the practice comes back in. Each piece is making you better. Each piece makes you faster at this or that problem. And it's always, it's just more problems. And when you reach kind of a degree of mastery, I think it's just that you've solved enough problems that you can speed through them and reach other often more interesting problems. And and that's just, it's just like a, a constant path in, until you die of, can I, and, and right now, you know, it's like, it's interesting. I'm so excited to see where I'm going to be in 20 years because right now I'm starting to be able to accomplish projects that I could not have accomplished 10 years ago. I just, I just would not have been able to do them well. And now I can do them much better. And I, I'm feeling, but there's, I, I'm always trying to identify holes or gaps in my abilities or ways that I could do things better or more interestingly or um, clearer that other people do. I get that, you know, ideas from other peers or, or just experimenting endless drafts, you know, better, better, better. Can I do this in a different way? Is there a different, and sometimes when I have either, when I either get to do a project that has never been done really explore a subject that has never been done in that way exactly that those are my favorite projects too is where I'm forced 
to innovate in some way in my own work. And, and I think you get a lot of that in science art. Um, there's a lot of things that people have drawn over and over, you know, how many people have drawn an apple and yet each person's apple is different. Um, and you can draw an apple in a, a million trillion different ways with different colors and different medium, different line or shape or color, you know, there's just so many ways to represent something. Yeah. When you hit on something that you feel like, wow, this is a really unique way of seeing the world or dissecting the world. I, I love that feeling. It's interesting because it seems you're always, as you're challenging yourself and, and moving forward, you still have your eye on the past. And I think that's, that's important. And, and understanding how much better you are, some of the original work that you were doing. I did a I created my own little artist retreat for a week and I, I took a week off my day job to focus on my art. My first day, the theme for my first day was origins. So I went to where I grew up. I listened to music that I was raised on, which I didn't like. Oh my but God, I, listened I love to that anyways. so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I started and I, I drove by the school that I went to and I had all the thoughts that came back to me were things I created. I didn't realize wow. it was emotional because it all hit me that I've always been a creative because the things that came back to me were the things that I made. And it really grounded me in the fact that what I'm pursuing now later in life is is who I am. And I really like that you're reaching back in your past and measuring yourself against that because it's not measuring yourself against other artists and other illustrators. It's, are you better than the artist you were yesterday? Yeah. And it seems that you're doing that through practice and you're doing that through curiosity and challenges. And I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that, I think that's a great, not that I don't ever compare myself to other artists because I definitely do. But when, <laughs> when you do, you know, when you go through social media and you scroll through all this amazing art or something like that, um, if that's stressing you out, I feel like you should stop for a while. But it's, it's often, I really like looking through books and things like that when I have the chance to go and, and do something more tactile or more um, singular rather than just a scroll. Wow, 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 you know, thumbing through so many different styles. It gets a little overwhelming versus like going and taking in a specific book that's beautifully done and seeing numerous works by that artist and really kind of trying to dissect what did they do here? What am I responding to that like, they did really well. And, um, and whenever I want to get better, whenever I feel like I'm trying to move into a different area or I'm trying to do a different type of art style or something, and I'm looking at other people's work, I often I'll put my work up next to theirs or I'll put up a bunch of their work screenshots in front of me and I'll, I'll try and go, okay, where, what am I lacking? What things do I need to explore or work on to make my work competitive or to make my work to give my work those things that I'm responding to in their work that I find so fantastic. And I think that's a really kind of a forensic breakdown. It's it's a really good way to move yourself forward. I mean, it's, it's what I would do kind of as an art teacher if I was doing, you know, that regularly just because there are, there are things that, that are specific in art. How is your brushwork or your line work? How much is kind of more out of focus or broad strokes versus those areas of detail? Are you going for realistic? Or are you going for a very stylistic approach? How much is left to, you know, splashes of watercolor and very expressive versus how tight is it? How is your gesture? And it all comes back to fundamentals too. You know, your form and your line and your shape and your tone and everything like this. Learning can, to control those fundamentals is so important so important. And, um, 
I think that's the one danger of digital art these days. I love digital art so much, and it really is where I operate most of the time. But I, I also love bringing traditional elements into my digital art. And I'm so glad I started kind of doing both, traditional and digital, because the constraints of, of traditional help you understand how to impose them on yourself digitally so that you have a cohesive image that reads well. And really taking the time, I always tell, you know, people who are trying to do this, go just take your pencil or your watercolors and get out there. Don't, you know, yeah, you can do a tablet, but like also just spend some time with that pencil because being able to do something with your pencil and understand how to do that with a single tool, a single size, you can't zoom in, you can't, you know, you have the constraints of your paper and your pencil. That's really, it's a challenge and skipping that challenge doesn't do you any good. You know, doing something fast, quick, and easy way may seemingly get you to the more interesting work first, but then you're, you won't be able to handle it, and you won't be able to advance. So it's that that time spent really doing that fundamental work is not wasted. I, I'm, I, I'm not really interested in doing art the quick and easy way, really, because the things I want to do with art within my lifetime, you know... There's no easy way to the end. You, it's it's really a journey, and you have to you have to go through those other levels, those other challenges to like to get to the end. Otherwise, you won't be ready when you get there. It's just like pointless. You won't understand what you're trying to accomplish. You won't understand why this piece isn't working, why why you're not able to create this or that effect, or even how to start going about doing it. So, the more time I put in, the, the more I can accomplish in a single piece, and. I look back, you know, and it's like two years is the the <laughs> normal thing, right? You always say you look back two years and you hate everything that you've done two years and prior. And it's kind of true if you're advancing, if you're if you're moving yourself forward and you're challenging yourself and you're trying to get yourself to be a better artist, then yeah, I think you should be developing at about that rate. Stuff two years ago, you should notice, oh, I took a shortcut there. Oh, I really botched that there. I didn't. I, I took the easy way out and now I wouldn't do that. I do that totally differently. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, as you develop your process, you're shortening that point between you making a mistake and you realizing you made a yeah. mistake. You know, when you start early, you make these mistakes and you look at the piece, you know, three years later and you see the mistakes and then you see the mistakes, you know, three months later or three weeks later, and then you see the mistakes as you make them and then you start correcting them. And I think that's where mastery yeah. comes in. You also build your stamina, you know, I talk to so many people who are starting out and I say, you know, have you ever sat down and just spent 40 hours on a piece? And a lot of them say, oh, and I'll say, you know, how, how long are you spending on a piece? And they'll say, oh, you know, like a couple hours. Like, okay, that's your next assignment then is sit down and spend 40 hours on a piece. Set it up, do a still life or something, spend 40 hours on it and see what you come out with. You might, might, you might be a much better artist than you think that you are. You know, that's a good point. Just give yourself time, give yourself license to work out those problems and really, you know, come back to it. Do something that do something like a still life where you can set it aside and take breaks and come back and um, don't force yourself to finish it all in the same setting. Then it's still going to be there. And so if figuring out, you know, you need to do some really fine work to get that shadow right or something, give yourself time to work out those problems and you'll learn so much. I think back to a point you made earlier about analog versus digital, and then I want to ask you about your tools. Yeah. You bring up a really good point about adding, you know, taking those analog constraints and applying them to the digital world, because I 
got an iPad a few years ago. I started using yeah. Procreate and I was really enjoying it. And it was like, oh, this is, I could do everything and I can fix it and change mm -hmm. it and modify it and, uh, you know, apply uh, filters. I don't do that a whole lot, but I could, I could if I wanted to. And I was kind of getting lost in it a little bit. And then I, I don't know what led me down the path, but I ended up going to analog and drawing straight to ink. So I wasn't even using mm -hmm. pencil anymore. I was just taking a sketchbook and drawing straight in ink and just being at the mercy of what happens when the brush pen or the fountain pen hits the paper. And that meant so much to me in how I did my digital yeah. work. I felt that those two at the same time brought focus and allowed me to become better in both areas. And um, so yeah. I, I really, that comment really hit home to me in you saying that you know you, you need to bring those constraints in and it will make you different than other artists. It will make you better as an artist. You'll you'll feel better about your work and it gives you an opportunity to, to move forward. I think ink is a really brave medium. I started in ink and I worked out a lot of problems in ink. And I would often do pencil and then ink over. And then as I got more confident, sometimes I would just, you know, do ink, <laughs> I guess. But uh, <laughs> ink, is, um, ink is a great tool for just practicing being brave and just because, and especially, you know, if you, I started a lot with microns, which are so great, but mm -hmm. I, if you have the opportunity to go, you know, get a crow quill and like do dip ink pens, it's so, it's so interesting because you, you will mess up. The ink will splatter or catch on the paper. And then you have to deal with that. And you can't like, you can try and blot it out or whatever, or scratch it off, but you have to just deal with what went down. Same with watercolor. Uh, there's so many accidents yes. and sometimes it's like, Oh no, the accident went right over their face and, and you mess up. But it's like, actually, you know, digital is a great thing for that because if you do that, you can scan it in and fix it and you don't, you're not stuck with <laughs> this massive mistake, but you still get an element of chance and you get, you know, the, just the chemistry of paint on paper or whatever. And that's just going to do its thing. And, and you have a, a chaos to it that our eyes find really beautiful we really enjoy chaos. And I don't know if it's like, there's some science to this about like looking into leaves of the forest or something and then seeing like, we really like organic noise um, visually as humans. And so, so if something looks too perfect, we're kind of like, uh, I don't know, seems suspect to me. Um, and, and there's a space for that. There's artists who do incredibly clean design work and it's very beautiful, but I really like the organic messiness. Um, kind of a, and I, I, I like to bring that in to digital work. I, I like to put a, a some sort of base there. I often like to, you know, throw down a paper texture as a background or something like that, even nice. as the most basic thing to do digitally, um, or to add some some grain or some texture over overlaying my work to to simulate that organicness, um, even if the colors themselves are coming out pretty clean in the work that I'm doing. And it, just because I just don't... I don't love things that look too perfect. That's just me, but it, I think that's true for a lot of people. And, and so there's ways to get around that. And then also, you know, Procreate. I, I only started using it a couple of years ago and I love it, but I've kind of purposefully not used it for all the things that I use Photoshop for. I don't like to finish in Procreate, but so often I'll set up, I've been doing, during the pandemic, I did like 450 animals in succession I was doing daily animal drawings and posting online. I was going to ask you about that, that was so, so if you go to my my social media you can see some of the the animals for and that was really great actually because I was just 
people were suggesting stuff and communicating about their favorite animal stories and um, science. And I, it was really a really great way for me to connect in isolation during the pandemic and um, kind of share some positivity out there, I guess, in a, in an area that I love. So, um, but those, a lot of those were done in Procreate mostly. So I kind of set up my plan in Photoshop where I can easily warp things around and kind of change things and sketch it out. And then I would send that sketch to Procreate uh, on my iPad and I would just carry that around. And I'd usually have like at least 10 of those in progress. And I'd work on the ones that I felt like working on uh, that day. If I was like, okay, I'm tired of scales, I'm moving to feathers, you know, um, <laughs> but it's really great for texture and kind of being loose. And I could carry it around while I was like taking care of my little kids and they're sitting on the ground, drooling on their blocks or whatever. And rolling around and I'm like, okay, I'm sitting here with you. Here I am, but I'm scratching away on my little tablet. And so that was, I gained a lot of like, uh, or just like when I'm cooking and making pasta or something, I'm sketching and the, I gained a lot of lost time that maybe I would have been scrolling on my phone or something during that time. I gained hundreds and hundreds of hours by having stuff on that iPad and carrying it around everywhere I went. And I, I really made a lot of personal art uh, during that time. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and keep that up with the iPad, it's, it was really a way to keep myself from going insane during that time, but also just get away from my desktop computer where I spend so much of my time hunched over, you know, like a parenthesis. It's just killing my back forever. <laughs> I just really wanted to get away from that. But realistically, digital art is where I function in most of my time. I, I can't do oils right now. I've got little kids running around. I don't have the space for it to be aerated. You know, it's hard to set up a watercolor table and not have that disrupted. Um, or it was for a long time. I was moving houses. And during the last couple of years, I was crashing in hotels and with relatives a lot with my family. <laughs> and so I, I, most everything was digital. I like hadn't picked up a pencil for years um, in a way. And so that, I think that's great. But uh, yeah, it does help to impose limits. And um, when I use Procreate, I'm limiting myself. I'm not using filters and stuff. Usually I'm not doing a lot right. um, that isn't painterly or inky or drawing. It's interesting you mentioned about the watercolor because I've it took me, I think, five or six tries at that before I finally gave into it and figured out how it could work in my head because I would do it and it's like, this is annoying. Why are you going over there? I want you to be over here. And I would just, I would get frustrated with it. But to bring that to your other point about you know, the perfection, right? And and when you take, because I create my own prints for my watercolor and I scan it in and then I see those imperfections of the lines that have gone over and it's like, I, I'm erasing a bit of the story here to make it prettier for a print. And I think we all do that, but it it feels a little bit wrong, right? Where maybe you touch that wonderful ultramarine and then you happen to touch the paper quickly and you're able to dab some of it off, but there's still a little blue there and it's, um, but you want to remove it from the print so it looks clean. Yeah, I feel like it's it's to your discretion. I've never been a purist. I'm very much a um, get or done, however you feel kind of person. <laughs> and so for me, you know, watercolor, I actually think watercolor is in a way one of the most difficult it's so approachable. We use it as kids. You know, I would venture to say most people have touched watercolor at some point in their lives. But to master it, I think, takes a really long time because you have to think about the layers that you're putting down, where you're preserving white space or not. You really have to go in with a plan and know what your paints can do and know how you can control them or let them run free with different techniques. My mom's actually learning this right now. And I 
<laughs> I'm having fun kind of shooting her towards <laughs> different um, that's cool. things. She's like, I want to do this. And I don't feel like I'm getting it from this. Like, oh, well, okay. That's not going to teach you how to do that here. Go this direction. You know, so it's fun to see her kind of battle with this medium and, and have success then and enjoy it. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm all for digital retouching, but sometimes it's nice to just leave some, it's nice to leave the happy accidents in there. Sometimes they're really beautiful. And I, I mean, I'm always adding them too digitally, frankly. <laughs> I like throwing in, I have, you know, a huge library of ink blots and watercolors, some of which I've collected and some of which I, many of which I've made over time. And I'll scan them in and throw them on things and make things look more organic and mess up my careful brushwork. I, I, I like that awesome. look. But it's, it's all really what you're wanting to achieve, you know? And a messiness it can be purposeful too, like in the right place. You want it in the right place. You don't want it in the wrong place. And and so when it comes to like tools, you know, you've talked about uh, Croquil and and ink and digital. So when you have your tools changed, have you were you more analog? Now you're mostly digital. Like and when you're talking about digital, are you? What's your typical process at this point in time? So maybe you can talk to both, yeah. like your transition in, in the materials you've worked with and then what your current kind of state of being is when it comes to creation. Yeah, I, um, so I started out uh, traditional as a kid, you know, digital. I, I did explore a little bit with Microsoft Paint and Visio and Photoshop early on, but then I didn't really master it until the end of college I was really diving in. So I started out traditional as a child and then I... Um, I continued traditional through into my mid to late 20s and um, into grad school. My grad school has a lot of traditional work, which most people then go on to do mostly digital. But I think there's a lot of value in learning the traditional, too. And I, there's kind of a debate on whether how much of that they want to maintain and, or not um, into the future, because there's just so much to learn. But I was kind of unique for my time, I think, my age group, in kind of learning traditional and digital hand in hand. I was doing them both. And I was also throwing in sculpture and other things. Um, I was really struggling to master the degree of realism and 3D-ness to my 2D art that I wanted. And I, some artists I knew said, you should really take a sculpture class. And I ended up taking a few because I enjoyed it so much. But they said, you'll really get, that really made it click in my mind, you know, the turning of form and light. And it, it really did help quite a lot. So understanding that and then using sculpture as reference, using digital sculpture in the form of ZBrush, Sculptress, which is now something else, but connected with ZBrush, um, which is so organic. And then learning, um, I work in Cinema 4D. So I'll slow down here. <laughs> Currently, my workflow, I work mostly digitally. I'm very much all over Adobe Creative Suite. I bring in some other specific products, like sometimes I'll do inking in... Um, uh, Manga Studio, uh, and I use Procreate now, and and sometimes I'll just pick out specific little programs that do something fun that I like. I've done stuff in the Corel programs before, but less so now. And uh, then I use ZBrush and I use Cinema 4D for my 3D work, and um, I incorporate that into animations when I do them. But I also incorporate that into my 2D work. Uh, you know, final things are often partially a little bit sculpted or, or 3D, depending on what I'm doing. But medically, there's a lot of uses for that. I used to do, well, when I worked in archaeology at the beginning of my career, I did a lot of pen and ink. 
and some watercolor and pencil. And I would scan those in eventually. And as I got better with digital, more things turned digital. But those, I was actually doing an art job where I was like working on vellum, like, uh, and, uh, and mylar sheets and things, drawing translucent sheets with ink over them. So I do like a bunch of pencil measurements on um, graph paper. And then I'd put a clear sheet over and ink over that uh, and scan those clear um, sheets to digitize them and then alter them, make them cleaner for artifact drawings. And then I would do like watercolor and stuff and pencil uh, and scan when I began. And now I, you know, I try to, yeah, I'll try to bring those things back in. I sometimes work in gouache. I work in acrylic, watercolor. I love pastels <laughs> when I can do them though. Um, and I, I actually love photography and I, I do a lot of photography um, as kind of a amateur. Sometimes I do jobs though, pro-am photographer, I guess. <laughs> um, and I try to incorporate that into my work as well. I do a lot of animal photography. So um, a lot of people ask me like, where do I get all my reference? And I, I do take reference from other people and I try to do it from uh, public domain sources. If I'm going to go close to a pose, because, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't be doing an illustration that looks like someone else's photograph if I'm going to try and monetize it in any way, because that's their work, unless I get express permission to do so. It's um, still, I believe, a violation of copyright. So, but I do actually draw a lot from my own massive archive, because I, I, you know, I just collect and I'm like, okay, I'm going to draw this and then I'll wait for 10 years, pull it out and finally get around to it. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I just... Uh, and I'm trying to do more sculpture. I've got a little sculpture sitting behind me now. I'm kind of dipping into children's books recently. Wow. And I'm trying to do, uh, not yet successful, but I'm, <laughs> I've got an agent now. So I'm uh, trying to sell some children's books. And um, I'm doing much more combined traditional and digital with those. And it, just playing around with different ways of representing stuff in what is a little bit less of a rigid um, final product. Because it's it's more you know, uh, it is a lot of not, it's nonfiction, but it's more like narrative nonfiction storytelling where I can be a little bit more fluid in um, my representations of things. So that's been fun, and I've been doing some like bas relief sculpture and stuff recently, playing around with that. So we'll see. I, I really I really like mixing it up because I feel like it it like messes with your brain if you get stuck in one way of doing things and that's the only thing you ever explore. Like you can stagnate and. Um, even if you're not going to sell a certain style, it's, I think it's really good to get out of your comfort zone. Oh, I love monoprinting. I kind of fell in love with that recently, in recent years. I don't get to set it up all the time, but I'll do a bunch of monoprints and then I'll scan in all the textures and then I'll try and incorporate those textures into my artwork. And I, I love doing that. Um, so can you explain what monoprinting is? Monoprinting is really fun. Uh, <laughs> you get these little, like, you can make these gelatin like stamps basically they're, they're floppy and you can mix them up uh there's recipes online and, and there's also like kits you can get um and then you basically just paint on them with like rollers you can use acrylic paint and you can stamp on them to remove stuff or add stuff you can go stamp on them with textures so like fabrics and and rubber stamps and cut out cardboard things and you can just layer on all these paints and, and um, textures, and then you stamp it down on a piece of paper. And that is, you know, your one, your mono print. 
and and it just creates the most interesting textural mixes. Um, and then you can you can actually add to that too. You can paint over that. You can draw over that. You can do whatever you want. But I found those to be really fun and approachable. They're really good for kids too. It's like you just set up a room, set up a tarp or something. And is it acrylic paint that you're using, or is it oil, or what's the kind of paint that you're using? Uh, just acrylic um, paint. I would often use, or like, um, or a. Uh, you can, I mean, you can do washable paint. It really anything that has a bit of body to it. Um, I, I wouldn't do oil. Something that dries pretty quick. Okay. Yeah, I, I haven't done it for a while, but I've been using. I've been riding off textures that I did a while back for quite some time and incorporating them into a lot of my work. So I have a, a big folder of those on my computer that I've been uh, putting stuff in, <laughs> but I, I, I love texture. I'm a very textural person. Um, I would say in art and I, I really enjoy creating and messing with texture in my art. Have you ever done, uh, you know, beyond the stamps, have you ever done any work with fabric or anything like that? I love textile and fabric art. I haven't done much of it beyond scanning or, incorporating the textures in, but I haven't done a lot of like making fabric art myself um, in the real world. <laughs> Maybe in the future though, I, it's, it is interesting, but it's, it's like a whole nother world. Yes. Uh, there's definitely fabric artists and textile artists that I follow online and I'm just amazed by what they do, whether they're doing it. Um, yeah. So who knows that that might be for the future. That's, <laughs> it's not off the table. Yeah. I think, I think the two that that really impressed me are these are the fiber artists that work with these amazing fabrics, and then the people that work with glass. I, I just those two blow my mind. Oh, I really want to try glass work, and I I don't know why I haven't because I'm from the Pacific Northwest where there's amazing glass work. I just I just haven't gotten around to it. Some one of these days though, one of these days. <laughs> Is there anything else that you want to try? Let maybe ten years from now, fifteen years from now, that you that may be really out there. I mean. I I want to do more sculptural stuff when I'm in a more stable place. My my husband's job takes us around the world. So we're moving every few years and it's like, it's just a lot. <laughs> we have limited weight that we can carry with us. And, um, and then we have to unpack everything. It's just like, it's a lot. So I, I've been kind of limited on the amount of sculptural materials I can bring, but I, I do love working with sculpture and, and um, I'd love to do more like 3D art. Both, both online, you know, both digitally and and physically. I, I really like the intersections between digital and physical art. And three D is one of those things where you're printing things and making things and scanning things in three D and moving those between those two worlds. Um, I'd love to do more of that. Um, but really, I mean, I just hope to explore a lot of different things <laughs> throughout my life. I, I really like doing things I'm bad at. So, like, I feel like I'll probably be picking up a new art kind of side project every couple of years for the rest of my life i hope yeah <laughs> that's really cool do you um you know if you look at and and i'll provide links to all of this and everything we spoke about in the show notes including your website because when you look at that it's like my i i don't know how you have time for <laughs> anything years. else years of work <laughs> <laughs> i'm wondering with all of this do you still have an opportunity to just sit down and draw for yourself um Sometimes. I mean, the, the things like the animals, that's kind of for me. Um, I, since I work for myself and I run, you know, a solo studio and I, which means I'm the IT guy and, and the marketing manager and the, uh, account keeper and everything like that. So it's, 
kind of when you're when you're a freelancer, you are your one-stop shop for everything and you have to do everything. And so you could constantly keep working forever and ever and ever. And there would still be more to do, especially in art where there's always more things you could do. It's just about time. But I have really tried to build in a practice of making things that I want to make and kind of using those as marketing in a vague way. So I wanted to do those animals myself. And I just decided, okay, I'm going to do them and I'm going to share them and engage on this. And, and they've also turned, they've returned into some jobs that flowed from that promotion. And now there's also some marketing things I've done or not marketing, but licensing. I've done some licensing of them for, um, for some card stock cards and, and little local guides and for, um, for prints and other things like that. So yeah, they, they've, um, they've made me a bit of money on the way too, but I wanted to do those sets. And then I'm also able to use them myself in my own projects and create stuff. So um, I'm lucky in that my work for clients and my personal work often kind of aligns quite well. Sometimes in my personal work, I'm doing things just a little more abstract, a little less precise, and they have less of a um, infographic look and more just a little leaning more towards, I guess, more of a fine art look. But, but yeah, they're often similar subjects. So yeah, I, I do, in that way, I do draw for myself. And then recently, this kind of children's book exploration has been my, this year's diversion. I've wanted to do that for a really long time, but I've been doing a lot of stuff for that. And that's just crafting stories. And some of them will never see the light of day. Some of them no one will ever see. And that's just for me, I guess, or, you know, my critique partners. The kids. But, <laughs> but I'm learning something <laughs> and I'm, I'm growing that way. I have less time to do art for people in my life than I used to. And I kind of bemoan that a little bit. Um, it's Sometimes it's a little hard for me to do something if I don't have a defined end point to it. It feels like it, like it wants to be out in the world. I want to have some sort of place where it's going to live, even if that is on my computer, but it, as part of a set. And that, that's kind of a problem in a way. Um, I used to make things for people more often when I was young. Uh, and that would be my purpose, my end purpose. And um, would love to do a little more of that but I think sometimes when you're a professional you just get tired and you want to step away from the desk at the end of the day and just spend time with family or whatever so yeah friends and and so creating something for them is is less important to me than just being with them but yeah as I control my time more as I get older maybe I'll maybe I'll make more of that time back and maybe this is a different way of asking whether you draw for yourself but I was just thinking as you're talking through it you know, we always talk about comfort food, right? You know, you're feeling down, mm -hmm. you're feeling stressed. There's, there's, we all have our comfort food, whatever it may be. Do you have comfort art? You know, there's a difference between just drawing for yourself or painting for yourself. And then I started thinking, you know, for me, if I do a lot of digital work or ink or watercolor, I have to go back to pencil. Pencil is my first love. I have to go back and that's my comfort art. Yeah. Do you have comfort art? I mean, I think Photoshop is my, my heart and soul. Because I can just do anything there. Awesome. And so I will I will go out and I think, in a way, I think a lot of my drawing for myself is continued exploration and continued learning, where I'm letting myself explore and I don't necessarily know where this is going to lead, but I'm letting myself learn. And, um, and it, it's not necessarily going to, that's not going to monetize my time or anything like that. That's that I consider that drawing for myself. And, and that takes, yeah, that takes different forms at different times. 
a couple years ago, I was living in Nepal and I was just photographing and that was kind of my drawing for myself. I had a great photo community there and we'd go out every Saturday morning at like 5am and like just Nepal is such a great place for photography and people are really friendly about street photography there and like asking them, can I take your picture and everything? People are really nice about it versus some other places I've lived or been. So that was so fun. And it's such also a beautiful place. You go around a corner and like everything's different and this little temple's into this wall or whatever and what's going on here this festival is happening and this thing is burning um so so that was like my creative outlet in a way there but then everything kind of ends up in photoshop in the end so that's and if i'm if i'm just going to sit down and mess around and i don't you know i might pick up the ipad or i might pick up a pencil or i might do something but often i'll just like open photoshop and dink around and um so that's that's probably my comfort zone now um, I just feel like I can make anything in my head there. And that's very nice. That's comforting. <laughs> Do you have, what, what's your tablet that you're using with Photoshop? I assume you're using a tablet. I, I have a Cintiq, but it's broken. Uh, <laughs> so right now, um, I, I actually mostly, during most of my life, have used just a Wacom uh, Intuos 5. Okay. And I'm actually very satisfied with that. The The kind of disconnection between pencil to Screen doesn't really bother me. I, I know a lot of people don't like that. Yeah. Um, though I have found drawing on the image is quite nice too. In more recent years, uh, sometimes that's. I don't know. It, I I am fairly flexible about my tools because I move around a lot. So like right now I'm, I'm in Seattle for the summer. <laughs> a lot of my stuff is in Fiji, and I have I carried my giant desktop here. I have like a big kind of, like music style case you can get these things and um you know shipped it with me as i and i'm gonna just do that forever now because it's great i love having my workstation <laughs> so i you know, I've just set up shop in um, my relatives my spare room and i've uh, got my tablet and my computer and my mouse and my backup laptop and i'm good to go i'm i'm here for for months and i can do all my work pretty much <laughs> do you have within photoshop did you create a, a bunch of brushes for yourself or do you like do you play around with that or do you use a lot of stock stuff like how much time do you spend in photoshop customizing it for yourself um i i use a lot of stock stuff i i play around sometimes um i create more brushes in illustrator than i do in photoshop in terms of custom brushes i think these days just cuz i can do like for defined patterns or something and then i'll like i'll often go back into photoshop Photoshop, there's so many brushes out there that I, I kind of like just picking up other people's stuff and then I'll modify it sometimes, you know, but I'm, I'm working with stuff that's began. Um, sometimes I'll do stuff for like foliage or other repeating patterns. I'll, I'll do my own stuff there, but, right. but I'm, I'm also like, in terms of filters and uh, effects and things like that, I use them all the time, but then I like to do a bit of organic handwork often. So Often what I'll do is I'll use like say a scatter brush of texture that like maybe lays down some trees or something like that. And then I'll go over and I'll scratch into it and I'll change things and I'll modify it. So I'll use it as a base, but I often think shortcuts, not the brushes are shortcuts, brushes like do a lot, but often I'll start with something that's more like a stamp or a pre-created tool. And then I will modify it <laughs> with a very kind of analog technique till it does what I want. But it really depends on how I'm feeling in a given season. I don't know. I'm I'm a really flitty creator in terms of process. I am maddeningly inconsistent. And if anyone 
like if I ever hire anyone, oh my God, they're just going to have to be the most patient person ever because they're going to have to like put up with constant changes of workflow because of my whims. Either that or I'm going to have to become much more diligent in um, deciding how I want to work. But it's, it's just, I'm, I'm all over the place when it comes to creation processes. I love it. It's being curious, right? And it's changing the routine sometimes and, you know, finding those discoveries and then building on them. And I just, I love hearing you speak about your work. It's awesome. It's funny, you know, do people just do and people work so differently. I I work in this way. I know people, you know, friends of mine who are fantastic artists, and they have a very set way in which they do things. And they will follow this step and then this step and then this step. And they, they relish that kind of ritualistic process. Mm-hmm. And that's great too, you know, and they create fantastic work and it, it's, and they get really good at that specific workflow or workflows. And some work really requires that. And especially when you're beginning something, you know, it often really helps to put everything in step form. And often those are the best teachers too, you know, where they're actually able to communicate very well what they're doing and why and, and the thought process behind it. So it's, it's all, you know, art, art is so so fascinating people approach it so differently and so many different things are called art and and the goal of the end art and how you get there is so variable between Mm -hmm. people in different situations i just love it i love talking to artists and i love learning how they do things how they solve problems how they approach things and what fascinates them it's never boring (laughs) to me i I love that uh you know i i have a bit of a, a bit of ceremony around when i write so mm-hmm. I, you know, I light a candle, I have the lighting the right way, but I don't really do that when I draw or paint. And huh. it was funny hearing you talk about procreate and just having it at your side in the kitchen or playing with your kids, that your ceremony is no ceremony. Like it is, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's an appendage. It's something that is, is, is off to the side that's able to funnel your creative thoughts. That iPad lived basically on my person for like a year. Um, <laughs> it was, um, yeah. I'm going to link to those, uh, those, the Animalia, uh, <laughs> series that you did and, and, uh, and some of that, cause I think that's just brilliant. But that's, I mean, that's, that's what I was working with at the time when you've got little kids, like, oh God, it is just a struggle to maintain an art practice, mm-hmm. especially during a pandemic with variable childcare and like bouncing that back and forth between my spouse and I, and grandparents when they were present but it's just like just I, this intense feeling of like I must maintain an art practice and, and client work as well but I can't do my client work when I'm making spaghetti or whatever right. that's that's not possible so what am I going to do during that time I well at least I can draw I can draw I can recapture some of that drawing for myself that otherwise could be lost during that time and just that joy of just drawing would be gone. And I, I, re- I do really need that, I find. When I stopped doing that for a little bit, early college, I guess, I didn't have that project space and I didn't have that coursework. And so suddenly for the first time in my life, I wasn't, I didn't really have projects going on and I got really sad. It just, I felt empty without it. And I, I restarted that my sophomore year of college on my own. And so that was part of the choice, I think, to go into art. It was like, wow, art is really important to me. This is something I really miss when it's not part of my daily mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized I hadn't really realized that before. Yeah, and others can see it on you too. My wife just recently reminded me. I, I did, I think, two or three drawings in one day, and she was like, "What's wrong with you today? You, you're just too happy." Like, it's, like, 
It's a good day. And I'm not a, I'm not a negative person. I'm not usually down, but she's like, what What are you on today? Like, I, just, I, I just, I didn't realize that it had such an effect. I, I mean, I was happy doing it, but yeah. it's not until other people see you and, and comment and make you realize that you're, you're, you're happier than you think. And yeah. I think we always need to remember that. I think so. Yeah. It's, it's always a good day when I am able to go and draw something that I enjoy or capture something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember I'd come out of the studio or I, I, you know, my husband would get home and be like, I finished three animals today. And I, I just very, very <laughs> excited. And one of them looks really cool. I'm really happy with it. <laughs> this other one, eh, I think it needs a little bit more detail work, but he's like, okay, cool. He's just endlessly patient individual. That's great. Um, <laughs> So I have a couple more questions, and then I'm going to ask you about homework. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I wanted to ask you about the business side of things, because you've been doing it on your own for a number of years. And I'm asking this on behalf of the artists who are either starting their business or have started their business and are looking at, at success. What kind of advice would you give people if they are in the space of uh, balancing this you know, it, whether they're an illustrator or they're a fine artist balancing, you know, commissions versus doing your own work and just generating revenue. Do you have any kind of tips and tricks that you would like to pass on to somebody in, in being able to make a living at creating art? Sure. I think to succeed in art, you need solid skills. Uh, <laughs> your portfolio is the heart and soul, you know, of, of what you're selling and um, having a kick ass portfolio that really is going to rise above some of the competition is really important. Having that portfolio contain things that you actually want to work on that are the kind of art that you are going to be able to keep up long term, whatever that may be, I think is also really important. Some people, I think, try and make their portfolios way too broad or they try and do things that they think will sell and their heart isn't in it and it shows. Whereas if you kind of lean into the things that I mean, don't completely ignore what is out there. There has to be a market for it. But you're trying to align any given market that you're trying to enter and analyze what that market is. If you want to be doing, you know, matte painting, or if you want to be doing fine art and gallery work, or if you want to be doing any sort of illustrative work, go and study other people who are working for the type of clients that you want to be working for. Go and look who's getting those jobs, who's doing that work, look at their portfolios, look at their work history if you can. If there's interviews or things by them, go find them. Sometimes, you know, email them if you want. Worst you can do is not hear from them. But, you know, do your due diligence first of all. See if their work is out there. Um, and they're, they've already, you know, answered some of your questions for you. A lot of people will have FAQs on their websites. And then, um, you know, pick out from the, that research that you're doing, you're doing market research, um, what is speaking to you and different people. And, and you might not find an artist that is exactly where you want to be, but you might find a couple that you can kind of mesh together in a hybrid. And then what are they doing well? What are they doing well in their work? What are people hiring them for? Is your work similar? Is it competitive with theirs? Could an art director or, or any or a gallerist or anyone else who's going to buy your work put your work alongside theirs and go, oh, this would be a person I would hire? Or, you know, if you're doing commissions, if you're doing private clients of some sort, you know, what are you showing? Are you showing any sort of consistent sets of things that they might want their own version of or they might want to print of? So tracking tracking what the market is doing and what's selling of yours, if you're having that success, is good. But also, if you don't enjoy doing portraits, don't do portraits. Just don't do it. 
just don't try and present yourself as a portraitist because you will get bored and tired of it so quickly and you will get discouraged. And really, if you want to be an artist and, and you want that to be your profession and your career, there's so many different niches that you could build for yourself or work your way into. But at some point, if you're doing work that you don't enjoy, you just won't want to show up to work. And it's it'll be so much harder, I think, to do that than to show up for, say, like a job that is mostly physical labor or something like that. It can go wash, go clean a house or something. And I can put on a podcast and just, you know, clean the house. And that's, I'm not using my brain necessarily so much to do that. And so I have that brain space to explore other things, but like be having to put your whole self into art and do art that you hate is really soul sucking. And that, so over time, I, I think that can really just Mm-hmm. get you lost so do believe in what you want to do explore explore to get there you know and try things out because you might find you really enjoy certain things that you didn't know you did before you tried it but um trying to always keep steering the ship i guess towards the right destination um with each decision that you make uh you need a network so you need to get out there you need to meet people you need to locally meet people if you can is often a great way to do things not every person is going to work on the the or or should or has a market on the national stage some people have much more local markets depending upon what they're doing you know and um especially like if you're working with a gallery or it really helps to have that base or you're doing grant work or anything of, of that sort uh connecting within your physical environment can be really valuable um and building out there first or ultimately and then online find pockets of artists that do what you like and learn from them and and champion their work and they'll do yours and let everyone know what you're doing let everyone know that you're on this journey and that you're trying to learn and um people will hopefully send things your way if no one knows what you're doing and you're just working in a black hole somewhere no one's going to come drag you out of it and say this is the greatest artist that ever lived they need to do this or that like no one's going to spend the time to do that you need to go and champion your own work and become your own promotional person. And that may seem smarmy to many people. And it feels like that sometimes when you first start posting your work on social media or something, but everyone out there gets it. That art director you're looking to work for or something, or that gallery, they're not going to find you if you're not putting your stuff out there and they're hoping for you to make it easy. So make it easy for them. And one thing I, I like to tell people is, you know, Artists, we, we like attach a lot of personal <laughs> emotion to our work at times. Get out of your head. It, your work is you sort of, but like, it's also just a thing that you made. And um, you care more about it ultimately than anyone else on earth. And, um, you know, your art in a way is a service, or I like to think of it as that. So when I'm promoting myself, I'm promoting a service that I can help other people with. If they need visualization services, I am here to help them, to collaborate with them, to partner with them. They need my work. They want my work. That's why they're buying it. You're not scamming them. You're providing a service, you know, and you should be paid for your service. You should be paid really probably more than some of you think that you should be paid. So go and do the math, figure out what a yearly salary would be, figure out what dental and medical will be if you're working for yourself and add those on top, figure out how many hours you're actually working during a week, during the year at the bench, and then calculate based on that versus a 40-hour week. You're not working on the bench at 40 hours a week. So your price needs to go up, up, up. And um, 
and people who will value that will pay you accordingly. So, uh, yeah, learning, learning to believe in yourself and advocate for yourself, uh, is a really important skill, uh, if you're going to be an artist and, and kind of having a, an ability to take on this entrepreneurial spirit, I think is really important. Be a grown up, you know, get your work done and, um, and believe in yourself, but do, sit yourself down at the bench and just do the work. Don't tell people, oh, my work sucks or anything like that. That's, it's unprofessional. No one wants to hear it. It's boring. And, uh, just get better, sit down and work out those problems and get better. It's, it's wasted energy to, to <laughs> bemoan, you know, something that you could just sit down and be fixing. Right. Um, I think. So those are, you know, kind of some random thoughts about it, but just That's good. approach That's it cool. like a business. And, and if you keep working on it, you will get better and things will keep going. And um, people can help you reaching out. There's mentors available often through different organizations. There's workshops you can take from people, ask other people what they did to get better. Um, and you will find a pathway. I had no idea where I was going at the beginning and I didn't know anyone. <laughs> and I just started doing stuff. And eventually I know a lot of people and do a lot of stuff. And, uh, it took a long time to build, but, but it eventually I made it and I'm not that old yet. <laughs> so there's a lot, a lot of time left. So yeah. Um, best of luck to you all. Thank you. And thank you be on behalf of all the listeners. I think, uh, you kind of answered my next question earlier, but I'm going to ask it differently. Okay. <laughs> uh, cause I didn't ask you the question, but I'm curious for you, Mesa, do you prefer asking why or how? Ooh, I think they're intricately tied together. I do a lot of, I do kind of a lot of science journalism in a way from my own, in my own way. I'm not, you know, (laughs) but I do a lot of visual science journalism where I'm working, crafting infographics, either doing the content or I'm working with a graphics editor or something we're doing, we're bouncing stuff off each other. I'm supporting them kind of. And when doing that, question-centered design is so important. What questions would I want to be asking as a, as a reader or viewer, a user? Um, and, and this applies also to like pharma and, and biotech uh, and interactives and things like that that I'll work on sometimes with clients. What is someone's experience of art going to be? I mean, this also I guess, applies to street art and galleries and whatever. What is someone's experience going to be and what questions are going to arise and how can you address that? How and why are tied, but they don't always cause each other, right? So both of those, I think, like the how of it all, cutting something open, exposing something that cannot be seen, reaching into the past and using clues to reconstruct something. That to me is where I most often encounter the how. And the why is a trickier question in a way, because often I'm dealing with biological processes and the why is very complicated. Or we just don't know. Why do we care? Why might this be happening? Um, When you have a definitive why in science, in um, or a somewhat definitive, as science is always changing, that's so interesting. When you've cracked the code of this little niche of the world or of this broader system, that's really, really interesting. And if you can explain how the why is and go deeper into that and deconstruct that, that that's like the making of a really interesting piece in science art to me, in science journalism. But doing that responsibly where you're actually representing the real science and you're not just 
doing one of those million headlines like new study figures this all out which it like never does it that never is true that's really irresponsible journalism and i hate it and it's so much of what's out there these days we're really we i think it's so important that we keep the complexity in stories that we tell in science journalism and the ways we tell research stories and science stories but also in the way we represent them visually simplify things clarify things, cut out the jargon, cut out things that make it difficult to understand, but do not simplify the beautiful complexity that is out there or misrepresent the reality of things. And and so very often that's the case and that gets perpetuated because people in our world just copy paste, copy paste, copy paste. And you then have a lie that spreads itself across the universe of the internet. I feel that I am honor bound not to do that. And I encourage anyone else working in science visuals or really just in art in general to really question what you're representing and to be honest. And if, if you're being asked or um, looking at representing something dishonestly, that you push back on that because um, it really does a disservice to everybody, everybody who will see it, everyone who mm-hmm. will try and learn from it. I kind of went down on a tangent there. <laughs> but but <laughs> well, think... both of those are very, very interesting questions. And it, it really kind of depends what's there for me to mine right. since I'm working with nonfiction subjects. I just, I love where you took that because uh, I asked that of my previous guest and I heard it on a, on a different um, uh, podcast. And I thought, what an interesting question because it, it's one of those open-ended things about how or why and how people apply it to what's in their mind at that point in time. And uh, so I'm glad you took it that way because it, you, you brought us down an important path. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. I think about those a lot. <laughs> <laughs> They're always changing based on what we're applying them to. Questions are so important. Yeah. They are. In everything yeah. we do. Yeah. We have to be willing to accept the answer. And uh, I think that's yeah. a problem with society as well. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, uh, as I always do of my guests, uh, a little bit of homework for the listener, something they can run with after they finish listening to this. And I'm wondering what you would propose as homework. Well, I think earlier I already told you to go draw for 40 hours. <laughs> so <laughs> that. But um, additionally, I, I was thinking about this and I was thinking, this is a very open-ended homework assignment, but uh, my kind of great art grandfather great-grandfather in art terms, I guess, is um, Max Bradle, who started the Johns Hopkins program and kind of brought medical art to America. And um, his work is fantastic. It's spelled B-R-O-D-E-L, the last name. So it's, it's a little hard okay. to find, but it's Bradle. It's German. But he, um, he says, you know, you can't really truly draw something if you don't understand it. And I think that's a really interesting way to approach an art project I challenge you, I guess, whatever type of art you're working in, to think of something that you'd like to explore and try and understand it and then try and draw it. And that can be going out in on a nature walk and picking something up and taking it home or sitting there with it and really trying to look at it and observe what is actually there and, you know, say, okay, this pine cone is separated into these things and I'm actually going to draw the structures that are there. I'm not just going to kind of um, rush my way through it. I'm going to try and understand how these fit together. Do they come from the same origin? Do they, you know, are they extruding in intervals? What is the form of this? How many are there? Really just examine something and and try and accurately represent it um, so that your viewer is getting the same experience that you are in holding this object in your hands. Or 
um, you know, you could take a flower home and dissect it and, and see what's the outside, what's the inside cut and, and learn, go open a book or get on the internet and, and figure out what parts you're looking at and identify them and what are they for and, and do they detach or, you know, imagine an insect crawling in here and how are they getting in here to pollinate this or, um, or thinking about some process that you're interested in. Like one project I loved doing and I'd waited for a long time to do in grad school was uh, sea cucumbers uh, that spit out their guts in order to escape a predator. I'd always been fascinated with sea cucumbers and I ordered one from the biology store and I dissected it and I found all the muscles and I, I recreated them and I made little sculptures of them. And then I did a whole big poster on how they do this. And I read papers to figure out, okay, what contracts, what detaches, what goes out and um, reconstructed that process. And by the time I got through that, I really understood the form, the anatomy, the physiology of this animal and how it went through this physiological process that I found so interesting. That one was a long project, but some of the more observational ones you can do in a much shorter time. Just Go, yeah, go find something you want to learn about that's fascinated you or is in your vicinity and, and figure it out. And then um, see where your art goes with that, you know, and, um, and how, how you represent it differently when you're thinking deeply about uh, structure, form, processes, change over time, movement. What do you want to show? Uh, could be architectural, you know, drafting a building, cutting it open, ghosting the walls. What do you need to do to show what's inside or what's going on? Do you need multiple images and, um, you know, a sequence of something? Do you need a timeline? Do you need a life cycle? Do you need, you know, what, what sort of visual can help you explain what you're seeing? Yeah. So take from that what, what you will. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I've been drawing insects lately and uh, um, it's, it just, it fascinates me, but I just, I'm not spending enough time on them learning about them. And now I feel like I have to go back and, and read up on some of the insects that I've been exploring. Insects are and- a great topic. So it's, yeah. it's like an endless world of fun there. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I've been learning about ants lately. Ants are so cool. I've got my, my two little kids are now, they're wanting to eat honeypot ants from the Southwest where they have like some of these ants will eat some of the ants in the colony and ants are eusocial, you know, so they have their roles of reproduction and, and production and foraging all separated. And some of the ants in the colony are like honeypots and they just feed them a bunch and their abdomens swell into these giant, beautiful kind of translucent containers and they hang from the ceiling so they don't like basically get bed sores and then they spit out and people eat them. They like people, it's like a little like honey snack for, um, so they, they're okay. They really want to visit the Southwest and eat honeypot ants. <laughs> no. but I've just been, I've been like going down a deep dive in, in ant land lately. That's that's crazy. We have a museum locally, and they've got an insect exhibit. So I went and saw some giant cave cockroaches and various other, and and took photos and then painted them. And um, I, I I created my own little series called Bugs and Coffee. So I would go to a coffee shop and draw and paint it while I had a coffee. Oh, I coffee love it. Shop. <laughs> Should get some coffee grind in there. Make some coffee grind paint. I, I thought about drawing with the coffee. Because I've 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 created my own mushroom ink in the past and I painted with that, so I thought maybe oh, I should draw neat. with coffee. Someone I know just did Thai basil ink, and she, huh. for watercolor, she does a lot of her own watercolor creation. It just looks okay. really beautiful. I'm <laughs> yeah. There's just there's so many different ways to like bring your own experience and time into stuff. It's really cool. Yeah, art's I agree. neat. <laughs> <laughs> it's very neat. It keeps you very busy. Yeah. 
So I wanted to, uh, you know, before we say our goodbyes, uh, wanted to maybe provide you the opportunity to tell people where they can find you online. Uh, some people inhabit other spaces more than others. And so I wonder <laughs> if you can share where people can find you. Yeah, sure. My my hub is mesashumacher.com. If you look up my name roughly and medical art or science art, you'll find it. I'm all over. And then I'm I'm on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. Actually, Facebook differently, but those ones are um, at Mesa B, Mesa Bree, M E S A B R E E um, okay. across those platforms. Uh, but if you go to my site too, there's social media links. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter. I would say more than the other platforms in terms of commenting and talking because I just I like it more. I kind of hate Instagram, <laughs> but I'm on there. <laughs> You can so you can reach me anywhere. Uh, come say hi. That's awesome. I I do like interacting online when I'm online. That's cool. Yeah, you were very easy to reach, and uh, um, I'm I'm so pleased that we're able to find a time that we both could connect with your with your travels and everything else, and uh, have a chance to speak. This has been wonderful. I feel I I know it's been a good interview. When I feel like I, I need to just. Go draw and paint. Oh, good. <laughs> so. I hope so. Me too. I'm going to do the same thing this evening. Um, no, I, I really thank you for inviting me on. And I've just had a, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. It really has. Um, I feel inspired as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It's always lovely talking art. To go try some more stuff. Do some, do some bugs and coffee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mesa. And uh, take care of yourself. Uh, looking forward to watching you online and seeing what else you do and uh, looking at uh, for these happy accidents and happy experiments that you're doing and uh, hoping to see more sculpture and everything else and um, wishing you all the best success in uh, 22. Thank you so much. You too. Okay. Thanks. Show notes, including links to everything Mesa and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 81. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, share, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This will help surface the podcast for others to enjoy. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. The music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod. 